Okay, so today we're going to look at uh, Zechariah chapter uh, 10. Um, And as we start looking at uh, this chapter... I need to go back and correct something that I said last time. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking, but for some reason I, I had it in my mind that chapters ten through twelve were the last chapters of the book of Zechariah. I don't know. I, I was replacing chapters twelve through fourteen with ten through twelve. Chapters um, twelve through fourteen introduce the, uh, of course, all the apocalyptic imagery, the the prophecies, you know, all those things that characterize so much of. Uh, uh, the 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 prophecies that speak of end times and all those things and we're going to examine those um, but I don't know why I was thinking it was ten through twelve so I went ahead and introduced the idea of that you know a, a prophet biblical prophecy the apocalyptic nature of the prophecy of the the end and all that kind of thing and, and it characterizes the last three chapters it uh, is going to be twelve thirteen and fourteen of the book but uh, it, it's not ten through twelve which is what I said. It's actually 12 through 14, uh, what I should have said. I introduced the topic because of the historical and the prophetic significance of chapter 9. Uh, you know, lots of people see Alexander the Great as the complete fulfillment of the entire chapter, and we saw how that couldn't be the, the actual case because of the peace that the divine warrior and the king would bring. Um, and then there's other people that don't uh, ascribe any weight to the idea that God used Alexander, the Macedonian conqueror, to, to uh, enact the judgments that he foretold. But I don't think that's correct either because the judgments that we, we saw last week, um, the judgments that uh, God pronounced were, I mean, indicative of the exact route that, that Alexander took down the, uh, down the coastline of Palestine. So I, I just wanted you to have... Uh, you know, and, and it, at least an initial grasp of how biblical prophecy often blends things together and jumps back and forth between uh, the direct fulfillment, the the uh, the ultimate fulfillment, and, and you know, it quite often points to uh, points to um, something that was indicative of the time that uh, that the people hearing the first hearing the prophecy would have uh, understood but also pointing to the the ultimate fulfillment that of course we know is in Jesus Christ and and so I, I introduced the topic <coughs> yeah, I think it was um, helpful as we looked at chapter 9 but I did say during the course of the 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 podcast that it was uh, 10 through 12 that were the apocalyptic imagery but it's actually 12 through 14 so that's corrected so chapters 10 and 11 um, aren't exactly apocalyptic the same way 12 and 14 are and we're going to see that um, so we just introduced the topic a little earlier I thought about going back and re-recording chapter 9 but everything I said there was um, beneficial and, and, and correct I thought I just had my chapter numbers uh, mixed up. So as we look at chapter 10, we, we're going to remember that chapter 9, remember God promised a coming judgment for his people's enemies, and he promised a perfect king that would come, bring peace and victory to his people. Uh, this king would be great and powerful, but he would also be humble as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And and of course, we know that this was exactly what the Lord Jesus did. Um, chapter 10 is going to continue the prophet's line of thought as he uh, 
explores the the victory and deliverance of of God's people. He's going to turn his focus away from uh, the judgment of Israel's enemies who are outside, and he's going to pronounce a few judgments on those who are inside. And that's important for us to uh, to realize because now, even now, as God's people, we have. Those of us in Christ, we have enemies on the outside. We have enemies we do battle with. But we also have um, those that are uh, false shepherds, false teachers, false leaders, people that are uh, technically seen to be that are on the inside of uh, of the people of God who lead people away from God. And God's going to pronounce some judgments upon them as well as those who are attacking his people from from the outside he's going to uh proclaim that he is the good shepherd in the in the midst of all these false shepherds and he's the one that cares and strengthens the flock even when her her leaders aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing that's what uh we're going to see in chapter 10 now uh, i probably don't have to point out the significance to you but this is one of the places in the old testament where where of course, when I was even speaking of it just a moment ago, you probably drew the the connection between uh, when Jesus talked about himself being the good shepherd and loses none of his sheep. So as we look at this chapter, we should remember that God is his sovereign. He's actively working for the good of his people. And all those who are in Christ can hold on to these promises of deliverance, even in the face of suffering and events that seem to be going uh, you know, downhill in the world. If you look at the news, it just seems like you know everything is just uh you know is going to hell in a handbasket so to speak but um the believers the the church of jesus christ is going to be victorious the people of god are going to be uh are under the sovereign rule of god the, the earth is under the sovereign rule of god and and the things that are happening are happening because god has uh is removing his hand in judgment and um, I'm not saying that I'm going to be excited when persecution comes or when, you know, something bad happens or when all these things are going on. I'm probably going to suffer um, just like everybody else would, anybody would in that situation. Um, but we should have a, I don't know, a foundation under us of knowing that God is definitely working all things for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. He promised to never leave or forsake us, and and the gates of hell won't uh, prevail against his church. So, anyway, uh, the the point of this is the point of this chapter is going to show them that in in the midst of judgment, both outside of the community and inside the community, for those false shepherds, uh, false leaders. Um, in the midst of all this, his people are still going to be victorious. His people are still going to be more than conquerors, as the Apostle Paul says. And it's going to be because God's presence uh, dwells with them, and he is going to strengthen them. So as we look at it, we'll just uh, start in verse 1. And it says, it says, Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. Um, in verses 1 and 2, uh, read 2 in just a second, God 
he lets his people know right off the bat that he is the one who is in control. He calls them to pray to him and call out to him because he is the only one who can provide what the people need. And in the ancient Near East and, and even in some cultures today, there were there were gods for everything, especially when you're talking about agriculture. Uh, people pray to the sun god and the rain god and the harvest god. And uh, this is probably one of the reasons why Israel often slipped into Baal uh, worship. Uh, he's supposedly the god of storms and rain and fertility. And, and you can probably you could probably imagine that in, in those days having a bad crop year uh, was a whole lot more important than it is today. I mean, it's still an important deal for farmers today, but uh, you had a bad crop uh, one year back then. It meant people go hungry. It meant families starve. It meant uh, it meant uh, it meant you were in trouble. So it was very important. <clears throat> that everything went right. Uh, but here, God says, you pray to me and ask for the rain that you need. I am the one who makes the storms and sends the rain. God alone can provide what his people need, and he promises that he will supply their needs. And then, the first, of course, the first part of uh, verse 2 goes with this. He says, he says, for the household gods utter nonsense. The, the teraphim, uh, they utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. Uh, they tell false dreams and give empty consolation. So he's saying, <coughs> excuse me, he's saying, I want you to you pray to me because I'm the one that controls the storm clouds. I'm the one that controls the rain. These household gods that you're that you're praying to that they're just uttering nonsense in your ear. They're they're uh, figments of your imagination. These diviners, these uh, fortune tellers, or whatever that you are are asking to uh, give you advice to uh, f- give you truth. They're telling you false dreams and they're giving you empty consolation. They they're offering you hope when there is no hope. I'm the one who controls the storms. I'm the one who controls the rain. Uh, These household gods, I said it when I read the verse, are they're called teraphim, and they were the they were the little idol gods, the little idols that people kept in their house, and they represented you know different little gods that they prayed to, and and God is quick to let the people know that they should be asking Him for rain and vegetation. They need, uh, they need. If they need this rain, this whatever it is to make their crops grow or to make their, you know, to uh, uh, to feed them or to whatever, um, these little agriculture, these little agriculture gods, they've carved with their own hands. Uh, that's just nonsense. Uh, they're just a man-made piece of wood or stone or, or whatever. They can't provide rain. I mean, they can't do anything but sit there. They can't provide a good crop. They can't provide anything at all. They're like a pet rock. You know, all they do is just sit there. It doesn't matter how much you pray to them or how you worship them. They they don't care. It's a piece of wood. It's a rock. They just sit there. You can be the most devout and sincere worshiper there is. But if your God is just a little hunk of wood, he can't do anything for you. I mean, it seems pretty stupid to us in our, in our modern context. And... You know, I'm sure that none of you uh, listening to this, hopefully not, are are carving little idols to go on your mantle at home and claiming that they're your God and that, you know, that your God is going to provide you with what you need. But 
It doesn't mean that there's no direct application or teaching for us today. Um, we don't really carve our idols out of uh, out of wood and stone anymore. But uh, we need to make no mistake: we we make idols out of anything and everything. We trust in our own abilities, our money, our family, uh, anything you can think of. We can turn it into an idol: food, pleasure, comfort, fun, work, rest love, uh, you name it. And somebody thinks that if they can just reach that, if they can get that, they'll have everything they need. And that's that's when people make an idol. People chase things um, for the entirety of their life, thinking that that is where their needs are going to be met. Uh, and it's just, it's just like chasing after a hunk of wood that you've carved with your own hands and set on the mantle. In a very real sense, uh, what we're doing today is just as stupid and sinful as carving a piece of wood uh, and claiming that it's your God. You know, I'm sitting here at my desk and I've got a I've got a, a cup here filled with water and I've got a notebook and a couple of books. And for me just to look at this piece of plastic here, this cup that's filled with water and say, this is my God that's going to save me and provide all my needs. You would look at me like, well, you. <laughs> You're kind of insane, ain't you? I mean, that's just a hunk of plastic. It can't do anything for you at all. Uh, but yet we chase things like like rest and love and comfort and pleasure and work and success and money. And we chase these things our entire lives thinking, well, that's going to give me what I need. And it's just like it's just like running after a hunk of plastic. The only true God is the only one who is in control of all things and can provide for the needs of his people. Rather than trust in these little knickknacks, the people are called to carry, um, to not carry, but cry out to uh, the one who actually controls the storms. I mean, you've got you've got a God on the one side, the true God who actually controls the rain and the crops and the storms who can actually give them what they're asking for. And you got a hunk of wood or a piece of stone on the other side that can do nothing. And instead of going to the one who is in control, asking for rain, the people are going to their little piece of stone and asking for rain when they, when they need their crops to grow and their harvest to be abundant, they're exhorted to call upon the one who actually has the power to do something about it. Um, just like those little household gods, you and I, and everything we seek after in this world, it, it doesn't have the power to fulfill or our needs or satisfy our wants. Uh, you may think they do for a time, but if you were ever to actually attain what you're chasing after, uh, you'd see that in the end, it's it's um, it's futile unless we're serving the true God through it. Uh, put it that way. He also says in this passage that the diviners who are the mystics, those who say they speak for the gods and can instruct us in in what we should do based on their dreams. God says uh, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Anyone pointing away from the word of the true and living God is pointing toward a lie. I don't care what they dreamed about. I don't care what they tell you. God is telling his people, you come to me. You be wary of all these people around you trying to tell you, you know, the right course to take and what you must do in order to get what you want out of life. That's that's what was going on here. The diviners were dreaming and interpreting their dreams, telling the people, uh, you know, to go and offer to this God and he'll bless your harvest. Go and fulfill this task and you'll be, you know, you'll have a, a bountiful year. I mean, doesn't that sound familiar to you even today? I mean, yeah, they're still out there. Uh, the the difference 
difference between Zechariah the prophet and those diviners is that he is giving the word of God. Today, we're, we are so blessed that we have the written word of God in our possession. We don't have to... We don't have to wonder or worry about whether this guy or that guy is telling us correctly or whether whether or not we should follow this teacher or that spiritual leader. We, we have the word of God ourselves, and it is our responsibility to study, to show ourselves approved so that we understand error when we're confronted with it. I'm, I've got news for you. I mean, you can dream about anything. And all kinds of things. If you eat a big greasy meal before you go to bed, you're likely to have some pretty crazy dreams. Uh, but that doesn't mean you should go interpreting those dreams to try to find messages from God. You know, I, you know, I'm not saying God won't ever use a dream to speak to you or bring a thought to your mind or lead your heart in a certain way. But whatever he says to you will always line up with the word of God. And here is something that everyone should know. Here's something that everyone should know. You and I, uh, when I say that it must be when it must line up with the word of God, most of the people that are going to come to you, um, they're, they're getting smarter. Uh, they're going to be real subjective with what they, they have said God is telling you. Uh, you know, they're not going to say, nobody's probably going to come and say, God told me in a dream that he wants you to, you know, what go cheat on your spouse or something like that. Nobody's going to do that because it's direct contradiction to the word of God. But they will say, you know, that God gave me a dream and he told me that, that uh, there's going to be somebody that's going to come into your life real soon, and he's going to need your help with, you know, something, and you're going to have to open your heart. To, I mean, it's real subjective. It's real, you know, vague. Uh, <clears throat> according to the Word of God, you and I don't need someone to tell us their dream. Uh, you know, we don't need someone to say, God wants me to tell you something. I mean, think about that. And I, uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17 says, listen to it carefully. You've heard it before, but listen to it carefully. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Now listen to verse 17. He says, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice what it's saying there. Scripture's given, you know, for all those things, correction, reproof, teaching. Uh, but it's also it's also there so that the man of God may be equipped and complete for every, every good work. Think about that. There is no work or task that God wants you to do that Scripture does not instruct and prepare you for. Did you get that? If God wants you to do a good work to somebody who comes into your life in a week or two or whatever, the scripture itself is going is sufficient to equip you and perfect you for that work. It doesn't mean that you're never going to sin or anything like that, but we don't, according to this verse, according to 2 Timothy 3.17, uh, scripture equips us for every good work. There is no good work that we are not equipped for uh 
outside of Scripture. We do not need people to come and tell us their dreams. There's no more direct uh, revelation from God. All we have is, I'm not saying God doesn't speak today. What I'm saying is God is not going to give somebody Revelation chapter 23. You know what I mean? God is not going to add to his word. And when somebody comes and says, you know, God told me to tell you this, I always ask him, well, should I add that to the back of my Bible? And if it's not on the same level as as Scripture, if it's not on the same level as God speaking, I want to know why do I need it? Because Scripture, Scripture is, it equips me for every good work. That's what it says. So you and I are not lacking something that we need some spiritualist to come along and fix by speaking in dreams and visions. We have the very Word of God. He's given us everything that we need. We, When someone comes and says, God told me to tell you, uh, you know, it's usually subjective. I, I, I Sometimes I'll just say, well, God told me not to listen to you because you don't speak for him. Now, how do we prove who is right? Uh, and then I'll take them to Second Timothy. It says that Scripture is all that we need. So verse 2 says that diviners, this is back in Zechariah chapter 10, diviners and the people who try to instruct you from their dreams do nothing but give empty consolation. That's what it says. Just like those those false idols that are made of wood and stone, uh, these diviners, they don't, have, they don't have any power or knowledge to actually help you anyway. All they do is make you feel better. They make you feel better by telling you what you want to hear. Uh, and look at the end of verse 2. Therefore, the people, this is the result of this, following after this kind of stuff the people wander like sheep they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd when when the people start listening to other voices than god's they are like sheep that wander off from the shepherd uh, throughout the bible god uses the imagery of sheep and shepherd to describe his relationship with his people. Sheep are relatively dumb animals compared with other animals, and and they have absolutely no means to defend themselves or run away from danger. So they depend completely on the shepherd for everything. And so here God tells them to come to him as as their shepherd for their needs and don't go and try to meet their needs with with something that doesn't have the ability to do so i mean imagine the whole point of this text is uh, we can boil it down to an analogy it says uh, like imagine that you're you're a doctor okay and you have uh, discovered the cure for uh, I don't know, some deadly neurological disease, some complicated disease that's always plague mankind. Okay, so your loved one comes down with this exact disease that you have the cure for, that you've been studying, but instead of coming to you, the doctor who specializes in this particular disease, your lo- the one that you that you love, they decide to go and and take their case to the neighbor. You know, and ask advice of him how to treat the ailment. And your neighbor's like a plumber or electrician or something like that. I mean, the analogy isn't perfect, but I mean, you definitely think it's pretty dang ridiculous. I mean, to go away from the one who has the ability to help you with your ailment and instead go cling to the one who has no idea what he's talking about. I mean, this is what the people were doing. 
And still what the people do today, God alone through Christ has the answer for every one of our needs. It may not come in exactly the way you want it. Uh, sometimes we think we need things that God knows that we don't need, and so he doesn't give them to us. But he takes great care of his children. He has the power to supply our every need, and we can't run off to something else that has no power to give us what we need uh, when God is there to supply our every need and to grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it says the people are afflicted because they have no shepherd. They've wandered from their shepherd. But but make no mistake, this is not a permanent situation here. God will deal with those false shepherds who proclaim things from their own dreams and, and give their own ideas instead of leading people uh, to the one true God. <clears throat> Verse 3 says my anger is hot against the shepherd it literally it burns against the shepherds and i will punish the leaders for the lord of hosts cares for his flock the house of judah and will make them like his majestic steed in battle god doesn't take this lightly he doesn't take false teachers Lightly, He makes sure they know that his anger is burning against them. Those who are leading his people away from him and encouraging the people to follow other, you know, so-called gods, uh, they'll have to face the judgment and punishment of angry God. Most most of, of the modern translations say, I will punish the leaders here because the context is definitely talking about those who are leading the people away. But the actual Hebrew word is goat, the, the male goats, the he goats. Uh, God's people, of course, look, you can see the, the, the uh, contrast. God's people are characterized as the sheep uh, that are wandering from the shepherd. Instead of following the shepherd, they are following after these goats, these male goats. They aren't even part of the sheepfold. They're goats. Uh, in a group of sheep, male goats are, are often uh, the bullies. They buck and headbutt the sheep, uh, all kind of things like that. So the picture God is using here, <clears throat> I mean, it's a very clear one. These leaders are actually he goats who are hurting the sheep for their own purposes. They aren't caring for the sheep and leading them to be closer to God. They're, they're after their own desires. When you think of this, you often think of you know TV preachers with their airplanes and their mansions. Um, but we don't really have to go that far to see how people lead others away from God for their own purposes. Uh, it's just a fact that people feel lots better when they can get others to join them in their unrighteousness or in their misery misery truly loves company that's not that's not biblical but it's it's often experientially true when when a believer sins the the holy spirit convicts him and it it feels bad because they hate their sin they've had they've got a new heart uh, but the believer won't have any trouble finding someone to tell them that you know what it's okay god doesn't mind it you're, you're not that bad we're we're all we're all like that just don't be so hard on yourself and what you're doing there you know, I'm not saying that you should condemn people or anything like that, but when the Holy Spirit is convicting someone, the worst thing that you can do is to come and uh, soothe that that wound that the Holy Spirit has given. The worst thing that you can do is come and make them feel better about the sin that they're in, and uh, that's just one example. You know, there are lots more, um, but... 
But that's leading people away from God. The point is here that God doesn't take that sort of thing lightly. Um, he declares that he will punish those false teachers. And most people do this not thinking, you know, like they're Dr. Evil or somebody trying to get somebody away from God. Uh, they just want to feel better about how wretched we are. You know, we are all sinners. And, and you know, people hate the, those that have been born again, hate their sin. And so it's not a good feeling. It's not pleasant at all to be convicted. It's it's not pleasant to be faced with your own wretchedness in the face of God's holiness. And uh, other people who uh, shy away from the conviction of God will do anything they can to make themselves feel better, including uh, grabbing you know their safety in numbers, grabbing some other people to come with them and say, you know what, it's not that bad. It's okay. Uh, God is God is pleased with you, even though you're living in sin or, or whatever, whatever. And so you can see there are a myriad of examples that we can show where people will lead others away from God, and it all boils down to not basing everything on the Word of God. We use our own imaginations, our own desires, our own hearts, our own thoughts, and we uh, and we put those ahead of what God's Word actually says, and then we can turn God into anything we want. Um, verse 3 tells us that God will punish them because He cares for His flock. And he will do whatever it takes to make them strong. Uh, he's going to make them like it's going to show us he's going to make them like a war horse and and give them the power to fight the battles they're they're going to be faced with. He will give them victory despite the opposition of those who want to see them fall. Um, now, we can get into a lot of ways that God empowers and strengthens his people. But the ultimate answer to how God protects his people is Jesus. Uh, he he died on the cross to cover their sin, to make them victorious over sin and death and the curse and the grave. He he offered himself as a sacrifice. Um, he's going to continue by saying that God will send the people a foundation, uh, you know, and a and and a and a warrior that uh, that they're gonna that they're gonna turn to. It says from him. This is um, this is verse four. Um, this is verse 4. It says, From him come, shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. God will send them a cornerstone. The cornerstone is <clears throat> the foundation of a building. It's the model for all the other stones. Um, Jesus is called the cornerstone cornerstone more than once in the New Testament and and in the Old Testament it's the cornerstone's mentioned more than one time but the the uh the the New Testament uh, apostles repeatedly use the Old Testament prophecies of the cornerstone and apply them to Jesus he is the foundation from which God shepherds his people now you make sure that we're not taking these verses piecemeal put them all together God's going to give them victory He's going to bring them back from the false shepherds. He's going to punish the false shepherds. He's going to supply their needs. And then, bang, we're given a picture of Jesus right here, the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, the one that's going to be the foundation and the uh, the, the the divine weapon, so to speak, that uh, that is going to be used to free his people from, from the curse, from the uh, oppression that they're under. 
he is the tent peg that holds down the tent against the winds or or holds you know the words also used as the nail that holds uh something up on on the wall or, or something he's the he is the one that holds us in place he's the one that is our foundation and gives us standing before the god before uh, god but he also used the imagery of the battle bow and says that the righteous godly rulers are come from him uh rather than succumb to the whims of these unrighteous leaders that lead away that these he goats that are leading the people away from God, uh, and they're supposed to be shepherding their people. Instead, uh, they uh, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Instead, God Himself will raise up leaders out of the people, out of the sheep, who will be mighty and strong as they fight for the Lord. Uh, we won't have to depend on those because when the Holy Spirit, it's going to get to to that in momentarily. But Holy Spirit comes, and this this prophecy of uh, of return and restoration and victory is fulfilled. Uh, God is going to empower the sheep themselves, uh, and he's going to raise up leaders from among them because of the sacrifice of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And verse 5 says, They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. God's people won't be the fodder for those who want to enslave them anymore. We can see this in, you know, the Apostle Paul, it brings me to to my remembrance of uh, when he says that in Christ, we're more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. Uh, John chapter 8, Jesus tells the Jews that if they would trust in the Son, then he would set them free. Uh, um, The Son sets you free, you'd be free indeed. And of course, what was their response? They were offended. They claimed, well, we've never been a slave to anybody. We've never been oppressed. And Jesus told them that the slavery they were under was much more than Roman slavery or Babylonian slavery or Assyrian or Egyptian slavery. The slavery they were under was slavery to sin. Uh, But no longer are God's people slaves. They are mighty men in battle that trample their enemies in the streets. Christ has given us dominion over sin. Of course, I'm not saying that we don't battle the flesh and the world and the devil, but our fight is one that is waged from victory rather than just desperately hoping that we're going to make it through. Jesus has won the fight. He's won the war. He's vanquished the curse. He's vanquished sin. He's vanquished death. He has won the battle we're fighting. Uh, But notice here that his people aren't just victorious because they're you know such great fighters. They're such awesome fighters. The the text says they fight because the Lord is with them. Now it, it draws pictures back to uh, you can you can recall in your mind all all the battles that were fought in the book of Joshua and and in Numbers and Exodus and when the people were coming out of Egypt when God was with them they won and when God was not with them they didn't win uh, it reminds me of the battle of uh, of course, the Battle of Jericho, God was with them, and they didn't really even have to uh, uh, break a sweat to get the wall knocked down so they could go in and conquer the city. Uh, of course, you know the story. They marched around it seven times. They obeyed what God uh, said to do, and on the seventh day, they shouted, and the walls came down, and they went in. But God also commanded them that they should not take anything from uh, the possessions of the people that were there. It all should be devoted to the Lord. And what happened in the very next chapter, we see a man named Achan who disobeyed and he hid some things in his tent and so when the people went out for uh, 
the next battle, which was the city of Ai, it was just a tiny little city, a tiny little battle. It should have been no problem. They didn't even send the whole army. They just sent you know three thousand men out there to go and and conquer this little city. But God was not with them, and they were defeated. And so Joshua falls on his face, and of course you know the story. They they find out Achan's sin, and they they uh, kill Achan and his family for the sin that he committed. And, and then they go and they conquered the city. And and the Old Testament's filled with the the images that when God is with them, when God has uh, blessed them, they win. They fight and they win because the Lord's with them. Uh, but when he is not, they lose. And so it's a picture of, for us, I mean, what greater picture can you have of fighting against sin and fighting the flesh and the world? We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We, You do it in your own strength and you're going to fail. You're going to fail from the moment your feet hit the floor in the morning to the moment your head hits the pillow at night. We fight not from our own strength. We fight from uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, desperately dependent upon Him, knowing our weakness and and trusting in his strength. Now, in verse 6 in chapter 10, the scene shifts, and I'm probably just going to read quite a bit of text. There's only 12 verses in this section, but um, the latter part, all the way to verse 10, verses 6 through 10, is giving us a picture of God bringing his people home. He's bringing them back. He says, I'm going to cause you to return. I'm going to cause you uh, to return to me. I'm going to bring you back. It says in verse 6, it says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Now, uh, the house of Judah, house of Joseph, they are indicative of the north and the south. Judah, uh, of course, you know when the kingdom split after Solomon, um, uh, Jeroboam was the king in the north, and he led the people away uh, from God. He caused them to commit idolatry, set up golden calves, because he didn't want his people going back to the south to Jerusalem to worship. And uh, Rehoboam was the king of uh, of the south, Judah. So you have in, over and over in the prophets uh, of the Old Testament, you have uh, sometimes they'll speak of Judah, sometimes they'll speak of Israel, uh, and that's the north and the south. Well, here, uh, the north is called Joseph. The north is often called Joseph, House of Joseph, Ephraim, uh, Israel, uh, Syria sometimes because uh, you know it was it was north of of the city. But the the picture that we have here is that God will reunite His people. He will reunite the split that has happened. He will reunite them uh, from the captivity that they have been sent to. Remember, the north uh, went into captivity to Assyria. They were conquered and scattered by the Assyrians uh, a couple hundred years before the southern kingdom was conquered and scattered uh, by the Babylonians. And so both were judged by God. Both were scattered into the far reaches of the the empires uh, under which they were conquered. And it says in verse 6, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. And it says then, verse 7, then Ephraim, which is the north, shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children uh, shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice 
in the Lord. Now, rather than to read 8 through 10, that, that definitely would go with this. Um, the fulfillment of this prophecy is seen in Acts chapter 2 uh, because God did indeed bring his people, we're talking about national Israel, back to Jerusalem. He brought them all back to Jerusalem and united them under uh, when one Jewish man stood up, uh, uh, the sound of a Russian mighty wind went forth, tongues of uh, uh, like as of fire came down upon them and it says that Jews from all over the empire and it lists in Acts chapter 2 all the different nations that people uh, had come to Jerusalem from the Jewish men from this country and that country from Ethiopia and Asia and I mean all through all throughout the known empire they had come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Pentecost and on that day God united thousands 3,000 on that particular day uh, united them brought them back into covenant with him brought them back from their exile so to speak uh, and united them in in uh, in the community of God at that time the the whole the whole New Testament church was nothing but Jewish people there were no Gentiles in the church at that time and nor were there any Gentiles until uh, years later when we get over to uh, you know Acts uh, chapter seven and the stoning of Stephen when the people were scattered from Jerusalem and so. God did bring them back, and he poured out upon them the Spirit of God in, in fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. And and it was the Spirit of joy. It was the Spirit of peace, the Spirit of prophecy, the Spirit of of uh, that uh, that regenerated their hearts. Uh, the children will see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I mean, this was the time when all these uh, when all these prophecies uh, would be would be fulfilled they'll be as though i had not rejected them they'll be justified i mean that's where that's the the language that paul uses they will be righteous they will be just as though i had never sinned they will be as though i had not rejected them and and i'll answer their call and i'll bring them joy they'll be like mighty men uh they'll have the joy of the lord you know wine is often a symbol of joy in the old testament you know it, it makes the heart glad uh so the proverbs say but the new heart of the people is going to rejoice in the Lord in this way. It doesn't mean that they're going to be falling around drunk or whatever. You know, you know, surely you understand that. But it's going to the Lord Himself is going to make His people's hearts glad in the same way that the symbol of wine does in the in the Old Testament. And He's going to He's going to grow His people as well. Verse eight says, "I'll whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them." And they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. He's talking about this return to not only to the land, not only to the city of Jerusalem, but to him. And that's that's the major point that he wants to get across. So often we focus on the land, and that was part of the part of the promise. And and he he did indeed give them the land. If you look at the last couple of verses in the book of Joshua, uh, it says that uh, Joshua told the people. He said, "All the promises that God has made to all our fathers are have been fulfilled." You know, and that was given to them. And here he's saying, "I'll bring them." 
back. And he did indeed bring them back. From every from every uh, corner of the empire, the Roman Empire, uh, the known world, the Gentile lands, he brought them back to Jerusalem. And it was a Jewish man standing up preaching about a Jewish man that had died for their sins and was the Messiah that was sent from God to save his people. And many of them were saved. And here... In verse ten, he's going to show us. Uh, he's going to show us from from the countries that were the biggest thorn in Israel's side over their history. Verse ten says, "I'll bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria." Assyria. Here you have uh, people that are in exile to the south, Egypt, and then people in exile to the north, Assyria. And he says, "I'll bring them to the land of Gilead, to the land of Lebanon, till there is no room for them." And these are the Lebanon and Gilead were were um, places that were bordered the the land of Israel, and it, it's kind of indicative because there's so many of them coming back. There's no room, so he's going to bring them back to Gilead and Lebanon. And then you know all this language shows that they will return. They will come back to me. I will bring them. It says it says I will. I have redeemed them in verse eight. Uh, and the only way God redeems people is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see in the last two verses is that the same shifts. Um, he, he shifts and it's almost as if he's telling us how he's going to bring them back, how he's going to cause them to return. Uh, verse 11 says he, okay, from from verse 6 to verse 10, <clears throat> the subject has always been I. God says, I will do this. I will bring them back. I will cause them to return. I have redeemed them. They shall remember me. Their children shall, you know, whatever. I'll bring them back from Egypt. I'll bring them into the land, whatever. And then all of a sudden, the subject changes and says, he, he shall pass through the sea of troubles and shall strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Israel shall be laid, Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. <clears throat> now, a lot of people have taken this he, the singular, to speak of the nation as a whole, as an individual. Uh, and there is, there is, uh, there is some truth to that, and it does indeed directly talk um, <clears throat> about Israel. When I bring them back, they're going to pass through the Sea of Trouble and strike down the the waves of the sea. They're going to come, you know, come from Assyria, come from Egypt. They're going to come and return return to me. But notice that all the way through verse 6 through verse 10 he speaks of the people in the plural they will come i will bring them i will redeem them i will return them and then all of a sudden now he switches to the singular he shall pass through the sea of troubles Uh, he will go through trouble but he will strike down the waves of the sea do you remember what we're talking about is people returning from their land, from foreign lands, to returning from Assyria, returning from Egypt. You remember when God took the people from Egypt? They passed through the Red Sea. They passed through the Sea of Troubles, and God delivered them and caused the sea to, you know, fold back over onto the onto the Egyptians. But here it says this singular: they're, the way they're going to come back, the way they're going to be redeemed, the way they're going to. Uh, to uh, come back to God is that 
this he, whoever he is, and I think we all know it's the Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to pass through the sea of trouble. He is going to uh, be persecuted. He is going to go through suffering. He is going to go through hardship and pain and tribulation and trial. But he is not going to be defeated. Instead, it says, verse 11 says, he will strike down the waves of the sea. He is going to conquer. He is going to conquer through suffering. He's going to conquer through trial. He is going it's a picture of Jesus winning the victory through death, through death and resurrection. And when he does that, the depths of the Nile shall be dried up, the pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. No enemy. Once that happens, once he passes through the sea of troubles and strikes down the waves of the sea, no enemy can stand against him. No enemy can stand against God's people. Uh, once that once that occurs, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the sacrifice has been paid. There is no enemy that can stand in in between uh, God's people and their God. Uh, it, they have been reconciled together, and there's no sin, no f- no fleshly instinct, no no uh, worldly whatever, and Satan himself cannot stand in the way of God because he has redeemed his people through the death of this one who has passed through the sea of trouble, but yet struck down the waves of the sea. And verse twelve says, and the result was, it says he'll he'll go back to the eye. He said, I will make them. Notice he's gone back to the plural now. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in, back to the singular, his name, declares the Lord. I don't know of a a clearer picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, I will make them strong in the Lord. I will make, doesn't say I will make them strong in me. I will make them strong in the Lord. It's as if we've seen this before in the Old Testament. It says, it's as if God is talking about God uh, in the in the second person or the third person. He says, "I will make I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in His who is His." The only antecedent there is the Lord. Uh, And so I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in the Lord's name. And then it says, declares the Lord. Now, unless we understand the distinction between father, son, and spirit, uh, it's almost like this verse is just nonsense. I'll make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. But it's if you take this with verse 11 and understand how the pronouns have shifted, he's talking about uh, through 6 through 10, he's talking, I will bring them, they will come and they will do this and they will do that. In verse 11, he says, then he shall pass through the seas and he's going to conquer these enemies. And then verse 12 says, I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name. This is how he has brought the people back and redeemed them. He's done it through the name of Christ. And then, of course, we saw that in the beginning of Acts, the fulfillment of all of this, when he brought the people back, not only just to the land of Jerusalem, 
but to himself. He brought them back and brought them back into covenant with him, uh, forgave them, redeemed them, all of that. And then we see as the as years go by and then the church grows and, and the leaders have had enough and they stone Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and then it scatters the church from Jerusalem and then the Gentiles are start, are beginning to be brought into the people of God or brought into this community. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We who are Gentiles, we were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but through Jesus we have been brought nigh. Those of us who are far off from Israel alone without God in the world, we have been brought nigh. So uh, this, this prophecy really speaks to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the victory that we have in him and what he has given us. And it sends us all the way back to verse one. And the, the, uh, the application for us is today is the only one, the only one who can provide for our needs, the only one who can, who can give us what we, what we desire in our hearts. And that is freedom from sin, freedom from oppression of sin, world freedom from death and the curse uh, that this fallen world is under. The only one that can supply that is Christ. Why are we chasing after all these other things and going after all these other things when it's just a little idol? It's just a piece of wood that we've carved out and set on the mantle. It can provide nothing for you. The only thing that can that can bring redemption to your soul and peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's promised to do that as he brings his people back together, makes them victorious, and makes them conquerors.